thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Uh, Chris, it's lovely to have you back, as always, uh, this Friday morning. And I'm uh, looking forward to finding out whether there are better and safer painkillers that are coming our way. Morning, Africa. Yeah, this is a really interesting study that's out this week by researchers from the University of Paris-Sud in France. Now, what they've done is, as one researcher put this, to put old wine in new bottles. They've built on 50-year-old research into the body's natural pain-killing chemicals. These are proteins called enkephalins and endorphins. And what they've done is to weaponize them effectively so they become much more powerful and long-lived in their effects because naturally these chemicals are present in the body so that they can produce short-acting, very abrupt, acute, but very rapidly terminating pain-killing effects so that, for example, you can get out of trouble when you need to. What we'd like to do is to exploit these very safe systems that don't have the side effects of things like morphine, including addiction, including things like respiratory depression, which can lead to people just stopping breathing and and dying, and achieve nonetheless the same powerful pain-killing effect. The way this group have done this, and they've published the paper in Science Translational Medicine this week, is they have coupled one of these proteins called enkephalin to um, a fatty molecule called squalene, which is another naturally occurring chemical in the body. And it produces this sort of meatball-like chemical, which is an oily blob with these proteins sticking out of it, like a spiky hedgehog. When injected, this doesn't get into the brain and spinal cord, so it can't cause the negative effects of drugs like morphine, but it does home in on where it hurts in the body, and it does produce very profound pain-killing effects. These are tests done so far in animals, so we don't know that this would work in humans, but because the way that animal pain systems work is very similar to the way that human pain systems work, we can be reasonably sure that it would translate. And because it's based on natural chemicals you you have in your body already, it should be extremely safe. So a very encouraging way to make a step forward in the management of chronic pain, which affects millions of people and which at the moment we're not very good at dealing with. We're certainly not. And uh, how many years away are we from, I suppose, clinical trials and approval by FDAs and all those kind of associations that will allow us to have access to this uh, form of uh, pain medication and management? Yeah, well, you've hit the wrinkle on the head with this one because uh, the stock answer for many scientists when you ask them these sorts of questions is, five to ten years they always say that because they don't really know but it roughly on a clinical and trials cycle takes between five and ten years from something that is in a test tube or a laboratory bench experiment to make its way into the clinic so this is not going to happen tomorrow but because the chemicals are relatively well understood they're already in the body that translation from lab bench to bedside should occur a bit more in a more streamlined way should it be a bit faster and therefore i would think that if they are going to make this possible and it does work in humans the way they would uh, hope then it ought to be relatively easy to translate so i'd say in, in under five years if it's going to happen
Well, let's certainly hope so. I already have some calls from you. More of those on 11 883 Eddie is the first call for you this morning. Eddie in Germiston. Um, Mario, can I ask you to pick uh, Eddie up for me, please? Uh, so that Eddie can ask the question to Chris. Eddie, what's your question? Good morning. Good morning, uh, Africa and Dr. Chris. In Geneva, I think Lucerne, they've got this big circular tunnel underground, I think smashing neutrons or whatever. I want to ask the doctor, what is it all about first? And secondly, can energy be harnessed from this? What is the objective? And can it create energy on a bigger scale, which is obviously a problem in the world? Chris? Good morning, Eddie. I think you're referring to what uh, is widely dubbed the Large Hadron Collider. Hadrons are the particles in the nucleus, in this case protons, so these are positive charges. They're accelerated in this enormous 27-kilometre-long tunnel underground, and because they're charged particles, protons have a positive charge, you can steer them and accelerate them with a magnetic field. So around this tunnel are enormous superconducting magnets which consume enormous amounts of electricity to run, but this enables them to accelerate these small packets of positive charges to within a hair's whisker of the speed of light. And this means that they're carrying a huge amount of energy and they can be steered using these magnetic fields. And you send one packet of protons in one direction, you send another packet of protons in the opposite direction and using magnetic fields you bring them onto collision course inside enormous detection apparatus and they have a range of experiments positioned at various points around the rings where these collisions can happen. And what the scientists are investigating is They're trying to probe by bashing apart these particles in these terrifically energetic collisions what they're made of because these particles, these subatomic particles, are themselves made of other particles. We understand what we think most of those are made of but there are also other things we're trying to understand in terms of the relationships between these subatomic particles and other things like the Higgs boson for example which CERN famously discovered recently. CERN isn't going to give us any energy soon it's a huge consumer of energy and uh, as scientists cynically say it's amazing to think that you need one of the world's biggest experiments to study the tiniest things in the universe these subatomic particles but it has made enormous strides in our understanding of the structure of matter and the fabric of the universe so it's a very important experiment and it's a big collaborative experiment lots of countries all invest in it and they all share in in helping to push forward the boundaries of physics that cern is delivering eddie thank you very much for that question very interesting david is in centurion david your question for chris hi chris i africa um my question relates to epigenetics. You know, number one, what is the difference between normal genetics and epigenetics? And um, in what way does epigenetics, you know, affect inheritance? You know, for example, traits passed from one generation to another. Uh, where does epigenetics come in there? Hello, David. Good questions. So first of all, what do we mean by genetics? Genetics is the passage of hereditary material from one generation to another. In every cell almost in your body there is a strand of DNA which is the hereditary material that we humans use that stores a genetic message that's a series of recipes that tell your cell how to make all the your cells to make how to make all the chemicals they need to operate as a human. When you pass your genes on to the next generation you pass a copy 
of that genetic message. But you don't pass the whole thing, you pass half of your genetic message because in each of your cells there are actually two copies of each of your chromosomes. One you got from your mum, one you got from your dad. And you give a random assortment of of one of each of those chromosomes goes into the sperm and it meets a random assortment of each of the chromosomes from uh, the woman and the two come together to make a complete set of chromosomes again and you get a baby. Now that's just plain old genetics. But superimposed on top of that genetics is another layer called epigenetics. Now in genetics, genetics is all about genes, and genes are these heritable units. In other words, they are individual recipes in the DNA, and different cells turn on different combinations of genes to make different recipes, effectively to bake different cakes. A brain cell needs a slightly different cocktail of chemicals being made in it to operate as a brain cell than a heart cell or a skin cell, and that's controlled by turning these genes on and off inside the cells. What epigenetics delivers is almost like a cellular dimmer switch. You have on the outside of the DNA a series of markers or chemical tags. And these chemical tags can be either turned on, put in place or removed. And it's rather like you highlighting tracks of text. You might run a highlighter over certain ingredients in your recipes. And this tells the cell to turn up or turn down the amount of that recipe that it makes. And you can add these tags and take these tags off very easily. So this is a way of optimising the way that genetics works and genes are expressed and controlled in cells in the short term. Because to change genetic information takes evolution hundreds to thousands to millions of years. But you can change epigenetics instantly. And so this is a superimposed, very short-term control on how genes are expressed and it's a reaction to the immediate environment. Now, is there an association or a link between the two? The answer is yes, there is, because what researchers are finding is that you can, by changing how the epigenetic markers are added to certain genes to control those genes, you can find that some of those epigenetic traits can also be inherited. So when the uh, genetic information goes from the parent to the offspring, some of these epigenetic changes can also be applied in the offspring. The idea being that if that parent has grown up in a certain environment and they've optimised their genetic recipes for that environment, you can endow your offspring with a genetic expression profile that's more optimised so that it has an advantage in that situation. Researchers are also finding that it might be possible to increase the rate of genetic change or mutation in areas where a lot of these genetic marks, these epigenetic tags, are added. So what might happen is that in the short term you use this epigenetics to optimise the way your genes work and this encourages the DNA to change physically or mutate in the long term to give you longer-term fixed changes to your genetic information in the areas where the epigenetics has been active. David, most interesting question. Thank you very much for asking it. Uh, Palesa is in Kensington. Palesa, your question for Chris. Hi, Africa and Dr. Chris. I just need to find that, uh, I found out from Dr. Chris, why is it that the water in the Gulf of Alaska they meet, but they do not mix. So you can see the two different colors from the two oceans. And secondly, why do you boiling water when you freeze it? It's clear, but if it's cold water, when you freeze cold water, it comes out murky. The ice block comes out murky. Whereas with the boiling water, it will come out clear. 
Okay, two wow. very interesting uh, observations. The water in the Gulf yes. of Alaska don't <laughs> mix. Wow. Yeah. Vanessa, thank you for that. Well, the, the answer here is that um, when you've got two different bodies of water meeting, those bodies of water can be at different temperatures. They can also be at different salinities, saltiness, and they can also carry different amounts of organic material. And because that water is at different temperatures, densities, salinities and so on, they may have different colours because of what's in them and the other things that are growing in them and the chemicals dissolved in them. And water at different densities won't initially mix. And this is because heavier, more dense water will sink below lighter, hotter, less dense water. And you can see this actually if you make a cocktail in your house or if you take some some very strong fruit concentrate, like a blackcurrant concentrate or something, you put that in the bottom of a glass and tip some water gently down the side of the glass, uh, you'll find that the heavy stuff sits on the bottom and the lighter water sits on the top. You can also do this, if you're careful, with food colouring and hot and cold water or very salty water and less salty water. If you make two solutions of water, have lots of salt in one and much less salt or or no salt in the other and add some different food colouring so that you've got two different coloured solutions. If you very gently pour one into the other, you can produce two layers and that's because the more dense, heavier stuff will sit on the bottom. So I think that may be what's going on in some of these ocean scenarios because there hasn't been time for the water to even out the differences and mix. Now you also ask about freezing water and why if you boil water and turn it into ice cubes you get nice clear ice cubes versus if you just take cold water out of the tap, bung it in an ice cube tray, chuck it in the freezer, you get ice cubes that are all crazed and cracked and bubbly. Now the reason for this is two things. One, when you boil water, you remove some of the temporary hardness from the water and other dissolved salts and things. Those will, if you leave those behind in the water, they'll affect the way that the crystals grow in the ice cube. But by far and away, the most important effect is that when you boil water and raise its temperature, you drive out of solution a lot of the dissolved gas that's in the water. Dissolved in water is quite a bit of oxygen, traces of carbon dioxide and a minuscule amount of nitrogen on the whole. When you boil water, you make it much harder for these gases to remain in solution, so they bubble out. When you then put the water in the ice cube tray and freeze it, because the water now has far fewer of these extra atoms and molecules in there that shouldn't be in there, that could get in the way of the ice crystals forming, there's nothing to stop nice, pristine ice crystals growing and you get nice, clear ice cubes, no no bubbles in the way. But that's a very interesting question indeed. I've learned so much in that answer. Uh, Dumi is in Midrand. Hello, Dumi. Hi, Chris. Chris Go ahead, Dumi. What's your question? question? Yes, I have a very simple question. And that is the conversion of smoke or flue gases out of coal-fired power stations into sulfuric acid or um, um, nitrates or fertilizer salts. Could it be done? Because I have the capability, but I'm having difficulty in explaining it to people to understand the prospects. Interesting. Hello, Dumi. You're referring to uh, what we call flue gas scrubbing or carbon capture, because one of the things that we're very worried about in this era is climate change. And the major source of climate change gases, particularly carbon dioxide, is energy generation. A big coal-fired power station will go through hundreds of thousands of tonnes worth of coal in a week. And that will all turn into hundreds of thousands of tonnes worth of carbon dioxide in a week in the atmosphere. Uh, 
And that's not good for the planet. We know we're emitting billions and billions of tonnes of carbon every year into the atmosphere. And carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas. What that means is that when energy comes into the planet system from the sun, normally it would warm up the ground. The ground would then zap that energy back off into space, just reflect it back off into space, and and the planet would, would remain at roughly the same temperature. But the carbon dioxide we're emitting into the atmosphere is relatively good at soaking up heat energy. So instead of the heat radiating off the ground back out into space, it sees this layer of carbon dioxide that can soak it up in the atmosphere. So effectively, the atmosphere traps energy closer to the planet's surface and the planet system warms. So what we would like to do is to reduce our emissions of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, but still have the ability to produce large amounts of power. Now, what scientists are trying to do is to come up with chemicals that you could pass the flue gases through, and these are carbon dioxide-rich flue gases from things like gas-fired power stations, oil-fired power stations, and in many countries still coal-fired power stations. And these chemicals would grab the carbon dioxide and hang on to it, and then the other stuff could go through. And what you could then do is to heat up whatever the chemical is that's grabbed the carbon dioxide, release the carbon dioxide again and collect it, and then you store it somewhere, or you turn it into something that you can then uh, store safely in the long term. Scientists are looking at a range of options, including taking that gas and putting it back into old oil and gas wells, because the geology means that the rocks there are very good at locking away gas under pressure for millions of years. So one possibility is to scrub out the CO2 from the waste stream of power plants and other other forms of industry, collect the CO2 and then force it deep underground into these geological formations or even reacting with the, the carbon dioxide with certain rock formations or other minerals to produce insoluble carbonates, for example, which are like chalk and they'll just sit there for millions of years and they won't cause a problem for the climate. So People are actively exploring this. The problem is it costs money because in order to do this, you need energy. So you've actually got to burn more fuel to produce more energy to do the scrubbing process. So it reduces the efficiency of your power plant. And that means it hits everyone in the pocket, which is why not everyone's on board with doing this yet. But we're going to have to do something because if we don't, we're going to destroy the planet. True. To me, thank you very much for your question. King is in Pretoria West, and King has uh, d- uh, dropped the call. Uh, let's go to Tommy in Pretoria. Hello, Tommy. Hi, Africa. Hi, Chris. Um, seeing that it's a Friday, my question has to do with uh, alcohol and drinking. So, what is the connection between one getting drunk and eyes getting bloodshot, and can it be prevented? So, why do my eyes get red when you get The most important question of the morning, Tammy. Thank you very much for asking it, Chris. Hello, Tammy. There's a range of things here which I think are probably going on. Alcohol does a range of things to your nervous system, and one of the things it does is it increases the flow of blood to superficial tissues. It has the effect of opening up blood vessels. And this is why people, when they get very cold, will sometimes have a big slug of spirits, and they say, oh, you know, it's warmed me up, because what it's done is to drive blood from the core of the body, where you're still warm, into your cold peripheries by opening up blood vessels. So I think one aspect of this, and this is why people get very red-faced when, certainly some people uh, I know get very red-faced when they drink, because they're opening up the blood vessels in the skin of their face. I suspect that part of the reason the eyes also get bloodshot is you 
vasodilate. You open up the blood vessels on the surface of the eye, on the sclerae, and the conjunctival sac in the eye, which makes your eyes a bit bloodshot. Uh, Alcohol, remember, is also a toxin and it's not good for you if you drink too much of it. And when you metabolise alcohol, you turn the ethanol in your liver into acetaldehyde. And acetaldehyde is very similar to formaldehyde, which is the stuff that we embalm dead bodies with and fix tissue with. Your liver's pretty good at dealing with this, but it's not going to get rid of all of it. So when you drink heavily, you will get some of this other toxic chemical washing around in your bloodstream, irritating your tissues. So you will provide a chemical irritation to sensitive places like your eyes. And it could well be that some of that bloodshot the thing that you see is because of the chemical irritation from the the products of of the alcohol consumption. The other thing, the last point, is that when people tend to drink heavily, they may also hang around and smoke or hang around people who do smoke. And the smoking, the cigarette smoke and tobacco smoke, is also very irritant. And so people often find their eyes get a bit red when they've been in a smoky environment. So that could also be part of the equation. And hygiene or those kind of things the morning after, not necessarily the best idea, right? I'm not familiar with that. What's that? Uh, it's those uh, eye-clearing solutions, basically, when, you know, when you've got a, I don't know, a pink eye or whatever the case may be, they give you that to sort of help clear the blood clotting uh, around the white of your eye. Well, it, it probably won't do any harm to rinse your eyes out because if they have been irritated and you have had things go into them, for instance, smoke irritation, giving them a washout will help to remove other foreign bodies, particles and other irritants which might be on there and will be making the thing worse. Um, the, be- the best idea is that if something produces these very visible changes in you, it's probably not doing you any good. So maybe what you should do is next time just drink a bit less and, and then you wouldn't have to spend more money on cleaning your eyes out afterwards. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Thank you very much. As always, Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist, is back with you, CBS, next week. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.